Hello everyone, I'm constitutional attorney Katherine Henry and welcome to this week's episode of Restore Freedom Weekly. You guys are going to have to bear with me today because I'm literally melting. It's just really hot as it is in several places of the country and uh, all that I could do to uh, not drip here and sweat I'm trying to do fans and AC and uh, drinking water and you name it so I can't even get my hair to dry it is dripping wet so I could barely attach it with a clip just to be able to do the show today so uh, bear with me um, because it's making it a bit uncomfortable as we get started today but um, like I said, welcome. I'm constitutional attorney Catherine Henry, and uh, you're tuning in for yet another episode of Restore Freedom Weekly, where we talk about uh, the Constitution, we talk about the law, we talk about government officials' oath of office, and how the people need to empower themselves to fight back against all the government overreach and the point-blank tyranny and take back our government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now, as you've seen, as you've experienced firsthand or seen people that you know go through this, especially in the last two and a half years, we have seen, uh, well, first of all, we've seen all of our rights being trampled upon uh, on many occasions every single day by various governmental entities and agencies. Um, but of course, with COVID, it has become worse and worse with that government overreach. We've seen businesses shut down. We've seen medical services and other essential services denied. We've been ordered to stay in our homes uh, and um, not have human contact with anyone, let alone our own family or friends. Uh, we've had brand new moms had to give birth by themselves instead of having the care and support of their family and friends. Um, we've seen people dying unnecessarily because they couldn't get the cancer screenings or various treatments that they needed. But we've also seen uh, as heroes, as everyday people have continued to step up, people that have been telling me, I mean, I have hundreds of thousands of people by now who've reached out to me since this all began a couple years ago, who want help, they want to learn, they want to be empowered, they have questions about specific circumstances. And of course, many of you know that I was the chief well, the only author of the Restore Freedom Initiative petition, a constitutional amendment petition that we circulated in the state of Michigan uh, in um, 2020. And it was the only constitutional amendment that's ever been circulated so far that would actually address all of this tyranny, overreach, mandates, um, jabs, uh, you name it. It would have addressed everything. And someday it should be recirculated again, and uh, the signatures, I'm sure, would be enough this time. But um, talked about petitions last week. So this week, what I want to do is focus on the aftermath. When you have those people stepping up, uh, stepping out, those people, those um, stay-at-home moms, those school bus drivers, those uh, you know, very small township uh, township officials, or uh, people on uh, city commissions or boards 
they've all reached out to me over the last two years and they're saying, I know this isn't right. Can you help me understand exactly how so I can help educate the rest of the people I serve with, as well as, you know, give me some ideas of what specifically I could do to stop it. Um, but many of these people don't even serve in any kind of capacity in a public uh, government or any kind of other capacity. Rather, they are people that um, never would have even circulated a petition or got political at all before. Never worked on a political campaign, never knocked doors or made phone calls or, like I said, gathered signatures. But they have decided enough is enough. And I feel blessed to be able to share with you or report that so many countless people have said, Catherine, thanks to all the information that you've been giving to us, uh, I feel excited. I feel you know alarmed. I feel like I'm empowered to go do something. And so I've begun this. And so um, a lot of people have stepped out in faith and in courage and are um, doing... That's so strange. Sorry, guys. Give me a second. Um, Rumble is uh, having issues. It just disconnected and reconnected again. Uh, so those of you watching us on Rumble, I apologize. Um, but at any rate, um, the you know people are doing things that they never thought possible before. They're speaking out at their local school board meeting, county commission, or uh, city council, that kind of thing. And then, unfortunately, when people do take those courageous, courageous, uh, heroic steps, some of them have had their rights further trampled, being arrested for exercising their liberties, um, for mere be, merely being present in some place, or exercising true free speech, not hate speech. Um, and it's, it's absurd. But I can tell you, you know someone who has had the system uh, trample their... Um, to trample their rights. Um, and today I want to help you. I want to help each and every one of you. Well, I always want to do that, but I want to help each and every one of you be best prepared for when you're in that situation, you know enough about your rights in that exact moment to know when you can walk away, when you can, uh, what in, you know, maybe what questions to ask, to know what the procedure or policy would be, what the rules or laws would be going forward, what kinds of protections you have if you find yourself wrapped up in something that you never should have uh, had to deal with in the first place. That's what this um, this specific series is going to be all about. Um, uh, give me a second, apparently. Oh, shoot. Well, Lori and Mike, uh, assuming you are still watching, stop texting me in your group text because you are the only two people that can get through when I have my phone on silent. <laughs> so anyway, sorry guys for the interruption if you're hearing my phone going off in the background. It is on silent, but Mike and Lori have the exception to that. Um, so anyway, um, they're handling the rumble connection we're having an issue with. Um, but I want to help you. Also, overlapping, I have my trial in Allegan County for that trespassing case uh, less than a month from now, June 15th, 9 a.m. in Allegan County. And I need your support. I need you guys to show support online, to uh, let the 
uh, Allegan County Prosecutor and Allegan County Sheriff's Office know what you think about their treatment of this case um, to let um, the whole court system know uh, to show up if you can, to be present in the courtroom with me. I need as many people as possible to ensure that I have any chance of a fair trial. I also need people who just want to be outside of the courtroom. I would love to fill the parking lot, uh, fill the building, and fill that courtroom to show people, to show each and every one of those government officials that the public, that we the people are watching, that we the people expect the Constitution to be followed that we the people will hold each and every one of them accountable if they want to stray from that for convenience or because of their ego or some big power trip. So while uh, this video might seem very simple, you know, due process, that's all we're going to explain. It's very important. It's important for you understanding the basics going forward on being able to defend your own liberties, your own freedom. But it's also important if you are at all interested in helping support me. Um, I do have a question. Stephanie on uh, YouTube is asking, why do you as a constitutionalist believe that direct petitions are good? It seems to me that it could be, it could lead to mob rule. In a republic, the people's power should also be checked. Um, Yes and no, the people's power should be checked. Uh, individual liberties should always um, be the, the thing that overrides um, the, um, the people's power, so to speak, as a collective, so you don't have the mob rule. Uh, direct petitions, well, I'll, I'll, it's a question that I wish would have been asked uh, last week, and maybe it wasn't, I missed it, but um, very quickly, I'll just answer that. She's asking why I support direct petitions, which doesn't really have anything to do. Well, actually, it has everything to do with what we're going to be talking about today. But um, as far as that uh, is concerned, direct, if if you look at, I've briefed this issue actually um, quite extensively in my Allegan County case documents, which are available on my website under the resources page. Um the, the whole concept, the reason why Michigan put more direct democracy types of uh, elements into the hands of the people, cemented those into the actual constitution, uh, recall, um, initiative petitions, constitutional amendment petitions, referendums, uh, the reason why all those pieces are in the hands of the people is because even in 1963, if you look at, well, I think the convention might have been in 1962, but the constitutional convention that led to the 1963 Michigan State Constitution, the last time it was totally redone, uh, the reason why those elements were either put in there or preserved and kept in the newest version is because as the Supreme Court has pointed out uh, many times before, but certainly in 2018 when there was a constitutional amendment being challenged or a petition being challenged, is that the people had severe distrust for their state legislature. They had severe distrust, quite frankly, of the court system. And I don't see how that has gotten any better in the last... Um, I can't do math today. I'm melting. 50 years, 60 years, 60 years. So it is it is a fine line to walk because you don't want to have mob rule. This is not a direct democracy. Um, it is a constitutional republic. But it's one of those ways where we can end up putting into place mechanisms to hold the government 
accountable. Um, hopefully that makes sense uh, to Stephanie, who's asking the question. And uh, it, hopefully, if not, that we'll be able to flesh out the rest as we go through today's topic. So, um, all right. So due process. <sighs> so let's start with some initial points to ponder. Um, number one, we receive our blessings of liberty from God, not the government. Uh, and if those of you who are watching on various platforms now or uh, in a future uh, rebroadcasting, if you are thinking, well, that no, that's not true. There's a separation of church and state. No, that's actually not true. There is no separation of church and state. Those words do not appear in the Constitution. Um, but the words blessings and um, freedom and um, uh, inalienable rights given by our creator, those... <laughs> Those words are in the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. and Michigan Constitutions. In fact, quote, we the people wanted to secure the blessings of liberty in the U.S. Constitution preamble. That's why we created the Constitution. And we, the people of the state of Michigan, grateful to Almighty God for the blessings of freedom, created the Michigan State Constitution. We are all endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights like liberty. And that of course is found in the Declaration of Independence. So uh, next point I want you to consider, each one of these could probably be its own video, but government was created by the people, which we know, but let's think about that for a second. It was to secure the blessings of liberty that we established the Constitution, which it says in the U.S. Constitution preamble. And again, grateful to Almighty God for the blessings of freedom and earnestly desiring to secure these blessings undiminished to ourselves and our posterity, we, the people of the state of Michigan, created our state constitution. That's in the Michigan preamble. We are all endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. That's a direct quote. And also this. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. To secure the unalienable rights given by our creator, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And many of you know this, but those words come directly from the Declaration of Independence. So, um... Government was created by the people. Well, government acts on behalf of the people. Uh, the most explicit example of how I had seen this recently in a high court was in a case called the Upper Peninsula Power Company versus Launce, way up in the UP. Uh, and that is a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2020. Um, and again, government acts on behalf of the people. If it's not acting on behalf of the people, it has no right, no authority to act. So government was created by the people, acts on behalf of the people, and derives its authority from the people. A constitution is made for the people and by the people. Of course, that was said in the citizens case in the Michigan Supreme Court in 2018. And they continued, the Michigan Supreme Court continued by explaining the government the Constitution derives its force from the people who ratified it. And this Constitution creates the principles on which the government shall act and by which it shall be bound. 
its most basic functions, a constitution's most basic functions, according to the Michigan Supreme Court in 2018, are to create the form and structure of government, define and limit the powers of government and provide for the protection of rights and liberties. Our Michigan Supreme Court reminded, of, reminded us of that just four short years ago. Okay. So government was created by the people to act on behalf of the people and derives its authority from the people. And way back in 1866, the United States Supreme Court in the ex parte Milligan case said, now keep in mind, case law is not a thing. Case precedent can be valuable, but I'm trying to speak to, number one, speak to those who are in disbelief about the way things are really set out to be and believe that courts have the final say on the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm explaining from the, the court's own words what is meant by our Constitution. But also, some of these are so clearly worded or um, just worded so great there's no way I could have said it any better myself. So again, the United States Supreme Court in 1866 said that the safeguards of liberty should receive the watchful care of those entrusted with the guardianship of the Constitution and laws. In no other way can we transmit to posterity, posterity, I can even read today, transmit to posterity unimpaired the blessings of liberty. We can't provide for the future generations to make sure that they also are exercising those blessings of liberty if we are not safeguarding with watchful care the guardianship of the Constitution and of the law. That is actually the main purpose of judges in the United States. And in fact, um, our um, very own Michigan Supreme Court back in 1868 and then again in 1891 explained that it is the duty of the courts to see that the constitutional rights of a defendant in a criminal case shall not be violated. Again, we're gonna be talking about due process today and what that really means. And these are just the key background pieces I want you to keep in mind. Also, the court has the authority and, in appropriate cases, the outright duty to enter permanent injunctive relief against a constitutional violation. So, uh, in other words, what the um, Michigan Supreme Court in 1989 and the U.S. Supreme Court in 1960 were saying here is that not only does the court have the ability to get in, the authority to get involved in a situation where a government entity or officer is violating the bounds of the Constitution, but it has the high courts of each state, uh, any court, <laughs> has the duty to get involved, to put a stop to constitutional violations, to grant permanent injunctive relief against those government intrusions upon the Constitution. And in fact, 
appellate jurisdiction, being able to appeal your case from one court up and up and up to another court, that appellate jurisdiction exists because the founders, the framers, knew, and this is a direct quote, knew that judges, like other government officers, could not always be trusted to safeguard the rights of the people. Well, yeah, uh, no joke on that one. Judges, like government officers, cannot always be trusted to safeguard the rights of the people. And that is from a um, U.S. Supreme Court case in 2004. So let's go to what is meant by due process. Well, first of all, I guess I didn't even have my um, uh, pieces ready to share. I was all ready to go with some of the jump right into it, but I want to make sure I'm getting the wording exactly correct. All right. So no matter what state you are in, the U.S. Constitution applies to you. The Fifth Amendment, I want you to take a look at first, and it says, among a whole bunch of other great protections, it says, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. I know you all have at least heard of that. Certainly those who are bothering to tune in to this episode, but I would venture to guess that a good 98% or more of people in the United States have heard of due process, heard of it. Also, though, it was important enough that later on in the 14th Amendment, it now says, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The Michigan Constitution, Article 1, Section 17, says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And for those of you watching in Florida, it is found in Article 1, Section 9. No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Obviously, the words that they chose back, way back then, at the beginning of our country as we know it, must have been pretty darn good because for the states to literally copy and paste those very words into the state constitutions over and over and over across all of the states, there's something to that. So what does that due process of law really mean? Well, this is coming from, and I'm sorry, I misquoted a, a site earlier, but this is the case from Electrotech v. H.V. Campbell. That was a Michigan Supreme Court case uh, in 1989, and they were citing the Hannah v. Larkey case uh, from the United States Supreme Court in 1960. So the courts, the U.S. and Michigan Supreme Courts have clearly said, this is a direct quote, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment embodies a dual, two, dual function. Not only does it afford procedural safeguards to protect life, uh, liberty, and property interests, but it also protects substantive 
aspects of those interests against impermissible government restrictions. So procedural and substantive, the due process clause of the Michigan, uh, Florida, U.S. constitutions, everywhere, anywhere, the due process clauses are protecting a procedural set of rights and a substantive set of liberties, both procedural and substantive. So substantive due process, what the heck is that? If I were speaking in front of the crowds of 2020 that, you know, I spoke to uh, in downtown Grand Rapids or in Lansing or, um, you know, any of those, uh, the um, uh, Deltaplex in uh, Walker, Michigan, any of those areas where we had thousands of people in person, if I had asked that question, who knows what substantive due process is? I guarantee, even with attorneys present, that hardly anybody, if anybody, would be, I know, I know, I got it. Because quite frankly, let's face it, even if you're an attorney, even if you're a judge, chances are you might not have really let that concept sink in. I know it was true for me for many years. Even though I was fighting to protect those liberties, I really glossed over what it means. But substantive due process, and this is a quote from the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, cases from 1993, Unfortunately, the court continues by saying, unless the infringement is narrowly tailored to serve a compelling governmental interest, there's something so important the government has to do here, and uh, it's their job to do it, and what the, the rules or restrictions are that they're doing are very, very narrowly, very specifically crafted just to address uh, protecting that specific interest, and they don't... Um, they're not casting a huge wide net that infringes other rights for no good reason. That's what the court has said. It also guarantees regulations will not deprive a person of life, liberty, or property for arbitrary reasons at all. So that is also um, a Michigan Supreme Court case, which is citing a 1937 U.S. Supreme Court case. So... Substantive due process gets to the concept that, so you have procedural due process and you have substantive due process. Substa procedural due process is um, what procedures does the government have to afford you along the way before you are deprived of life, liberty, or property? If they're claiming you committed a crime and they want to put you in jail or give you a fine or something of that nature, uh, then they have to provide you a proper process, a fair process along the way, procedural due process, so that you can have uh, your chance to respond to the allegations or charges against you and have a fair day in court. Substantive due process really goes to the underlying uh, action they're taking against you. And that's why I'm going to talk about the uh, my upcoming Allegan County case, because it's a perfect example of essentially concerns that so many of you have been uh, considering or um, you know worried about as you fight your own fight for freedom in your own locations. 
Um, so, um, here's some initial thoughts we should consider that'll hope hopefully help uh, plant the the rest of the seeds here, and you can see the whole big picture. I had a right in the Allegan County Election Day case. I had a right to be on public township property. Thus, the arbitrary actions of the clerk that day and of the deputy deputies violated my substantive due process protections. So it wasn't so much how they were doing it. It was that they didn't have a right to stop me. They didn't have the power or authority to stop me or the actual petition circulators that day. They didn't have a right or power to stop us from being there in the first place. But while the court in my case and the prosecutor's office at least five prosecutors that have touched my file that I know of. The court and the prosecutor allowing this case to continue in callous disregard for the lack of subject matter jurisdiction where the court has no right to hear the case to begin with. When the prosecutor and the court are continuing, they're allowing this case to continue when the court doesn't even have jurisdiction over this. It's creating additional due process violations. But another thing to consider, when government officials violate the Constitution, the Constitution, and this is a direct quote, does not permit judges to look the other way. Rather, they must call foul when the constitutional lines are crossed. And what am I quoting? None other than in-ray certified questions that very famous case from October of 2020, the case that I argued in the Michigan Supreme Court in September that was decided on October 2nd, 2020. Right out of that case, it says that the Constitution does not permit judges to look the other way when government officials violate the Constitution. Rather, they must call foul when the constitutional lines are crossed. They have to. Of course, a lot of them aren't. This certainly applies to a court reviewing a lower court's ruling. So if you're someone who's had administrative procedures brought against you or your business or your license uh, to have, you know, your restaurant open or your barbershop or anything like that, um, or you've had um, actual criminal charges for trespassing or disturbing the peace or something of that nature brought against you tied to all of this craziness going on with these uh, tyrannical measures they've taken in the last two years. Keep in mind that if you're losing at the trial court level in district court, or it might be circuit court or the court of appeals or excuse me, not court of appeals, the um, court of claims, which is uh, in Michigan, another trial court um, or the probate court. Or like I said, with an administrative law court, this duty of the court, of an appellate court, to not look the other way, but instead do something about the situation when the constitutional limits are crossed, that applies to an appeal that you file because it's the court's the court has a fidelity to the Michigan Constitution, and it's crucial. And that is in the words um, of the Michigan Supreme Court from 2010. So um, 
because as in my case, there's an example in my case with the election day case, uh, the court doesn't have subject matter jurisdiction. They had no right to bring me uh, into court. The prosecutor, the sheriff's deputies, they're literally charging me with something that is not a crime. They're trying to stretch it and say, uh, I was trespassing, but you literally cannot trespass on property open to the general public. The Supreme Court has long said that, even since the 1950s and 60s. It's not disputed. You cannot be criminally charged with trespassing if you are on property, even if it's privately owned. It doesn't matter if it's open to the general public. You cannot receive criminal trespass charges. Yes, that would apply to a place like a Walmart or you know a grocery store. If it's open to the general public, your mere presence is not a crime. Um, now, obviously, if you're threatening someone with bodily injury or, uh, you know, something of that nature or um, prohibiting people from utilizing the service um, or buying the goods that are there, if you're getting in the way of other people being there, then that's not OK. But that's not your mere presence that we're talking about. So because the court has no subject matter jurisdiction in my case, my substantive due process rights are violated. So if you're in a situation where you're being charged with um, with something that is not a crime, uh, where the court has no jurisdiction over the matter, then your substantive due process rights are being violated. So let's kind of take an example or, or uh, take this uh, a little bit further with the example of my case. Authority is inherent in the people, not the government. We have a right to be on government property, generally speaking. Now, you don't have a right to be on government property that is restricted for specific uses that benefit the public. I mean, uh, to go on a, a, a prison you know, prison grounds, um, or, you know, certain, certain portions of, uh, the, uh, U.S. post office. Um, can't think of other, you know, you can't go to a department of Homeland security or, you know, U U.S. military base and just say, oh, this is government property. So I get to just walk on it whenever I feel like it. No, those, th that makes sense that you would have, um, if you're in a community that has a municipal hospital, for example, uh, you're not uh, entitled to just go into every room and office in the whole building because it's government owned. No, the patients that are being seen there would have privacy interests as well as, you know, you can't contaminate uh, the field of the surgical room and things of that nature. Our fire and police stations need to be able to have um, their materials not messed with or the public not getting in the way of them heading out on an emergency basis to respond to, to a call. So those kinds of things make sense. But in general, the, the government can't own property just for its own sake. It has to own property uh, for the benefit of the people. And so we, in general, have a right to be on government property. But also you might be exercising your rights to free speech and to peaceful assembly. And those would be specifically um, protected if you're in a place that's traditionally known for people gathering or petitioning the government or speaking freely, uh, like a town hall, 
such as in my case, a town library or um, a place where government officials meet for like city council meetings or things of that nature, your rights to free speech and peaceably assemble would be even more so uh, important to have the government protect in those situations. Also, in the state of Michigan, especially because we have additional direct uh, petition um, power in the people, uh, specifically the petition that I drafted was uh, Article 12, Section 2 of the Michigan State Constitution for Constitutional Amendment Petitions. Um, those additional protections for ballot access which um, even the U.S. Supreme Court in a variety of ways have talked about the right to get on the ballot, the right to get your candidate or your party or your, you know, your cause or whatever it is to be able to to get on the ballot, to have your voice heard in that way. That's essential to any kind of representative uh, constitutional republic, right? Um, if you don't have the um, authority, if you don't have the power to get your own voice heard in an election, what's the point of having the election? Because then the people being elected are not representing the interests of the people at all. But we do. We just have to fight for that right. In my case, the clerk, the township clerk who merely said she didn't want me there. Now, she didn't say uh, that, and nor was it the case that you know, my being there was impeding the ability of people to drive in the parking lot or of people to come into the building to vote or uh, use other municipal services. I wasn't in the way of any kind of uh, first responders from being able to access the building. We weren't near a fire hydrant. We were nowhere near the 100 foot mark away from the door of the polling precinct. We weren't threatening anybody. In fact, voters had to go out of their way and past their car to the other side of the parking lot just to get to where the petition was being circulated. Um, and again, I showed up as the attorney uh, for the people that were there circulating the petition, but I also wrote the petition. So I have a vested interest in that myself. So the clerk did not have the authority to force me to leave that public property. Um, the clerk lacked any kind of compelling interest to have me excluded from a public forum, a place where people are known traditionally all throughout our country's history to go into places just like that, a township hall, to assemble and uh, have their voices heard. The clerk um, did not, uh, the way they were trying to remove me was certainly not narrowly tailored to some sort of governmental interest. If they wanted to protect the rights of voters that day, then they can't just have a blanket prohibition and say, well, nobody else is allowed to be here except for those people that are actually voting. No, because in Michigan, there are a lot of great statutes that put into place the ability to be poll watchers or election challengers. Uh, in fact, I gave you guys a way to get involved challenge of the week, uh, maybe four weeks ago that speaks specifically to those. And we talked about what laws uh, Michigan and Florida have uh, regarding being a being in those uh, one of those positions to be a poll challenger or uh, whatnot. Um, also, government um, I'm trying to figure out what a comment on YouTube is all about. Um, 
anyway, the um, government cannot be vague or overbroad when um, they're trying to give authority to a specific government official. So the court doesn't have, or you know, there's no jurisdiction for the state to come after somebody because uh, a municipality is is trying to give like super broad powers to someone like a township clerk, as in, such as in this case. That means this, my substantive due process rights were violated because um, it's it's more of a blanket, you know, blank check. They could do whatever they wanted with it, right? Um, also important. What other ways can substantive due process issues arise? Well, uh, in this case, the court, um, excuse me, the sheriff's deputies were um, utilizing this uh, resolution, not an ordinance, uh, a resolution that they claimed was um, giving the clerk authority to have me removed from the property. The actual wording didn't do that, but anyway, to take their... Um, you know, take them and their argument at face value for just a second here, even if it did, even if you have a resolution or ordinance that supposedly allows a township clerk or another government official to um, regulate what's happening on election day and remove members of the public from the property on election day, election law preempts all that. In fact, our United States Constitution specifically says, and we talked about this last week, that it is the legislature, the state legislature, that is required to set the regulations for the time, the place, and the manner of elections. They can't delegate that to a local township office or a city clerk or a county commission. They can't delegate that. The state has to have uniform election laws, and Michigan specifically has Michigan election law. That is the chunk of laws regulating elections, and those elections uh, laws would preempt very explicitly any attempts from a municipality from trying to stop people from being present or initiating issuing some other kind of restriction on the people. Now, keep in mind, we have another election coming up very soon. So in case you're starting to think, well, gosh, this all happened, you know, two years ago. Right. But you need to know your substantive due process rights in being present on election day uh, to help ensure the integrity of the process going forward. Um, so we've talked about this before, but only ordinances, not resolutions, ordinances can legally regulate the people. You can't use a resolution to create basically local laws. You can't do it. Local laws are ordinances. So when they tried to use this resolution, which clearly says all over it, it's a resolution. Resolutions and ordinances are not the same thing. They have totally different uh, sets of procedures in Florida statutes and Michigan statutes, you name it, um, all across the country. Resolutions are different than statutes. And the process is different, in fact, you would be denied due process of law if uh, they are circumventing the requirements of enacting ordinances or local laws by simply trying to call them resolutions and, and shortcut to the end with uh, a resolution. So the court doesn't have 
subject matter jurisdiction because of that. But that also means another reason why substantive due process rights are being violated. It's not um, how they're doing it in terms of, um, you know, the case proceeding, but the actual regulation itself is not allowable. Um, if you're ever charged with anything relating to your car, your vehicle, parking, uh, vehicle and parking laws preempt um, any kind of parking resolution uh, or ordinance. Uh, that would be all across the country, but specifically in Michigan. And if you're interested about that, this particular piece, you've had uh, some issues relating to this and you want to know some great legal resources to cite, uh, you can definitely take a look at my briefs, that my appellate briefs that I have on the website right now. And I promise you very shortly when we launch our very new website, it'll be much easier to navigate all those documents as well, but they are out there. So um, also in my case, I was going to uh, the poll that day, going to that uh, petition site as an attorney. And they don't deny that. The sheriff's deputy knows that when I talked to him on the phone that I was the attorney for the petition and for the, the circulators that were there and that um, I was going to come specifically for the purpose of talking to him about the law, about the constitution, about this resolution, so we could come to a common understanding because it seemed like we were just at such, he was being so absurd, I thought it's impossible that he's actually this absurd uh, and so far off base when he took an oath to uphold the US constitution. Um, no, it's, it must be a, a miscommunication issue. And I'm, I'm hard of hearing. I'm deaf in one ear. And perhaps I was mishearing some of the things he was saying. So, um, anyway, I went out as an attorney and, um, in certainly in Michigan state law, when you are serving as a public official and yes, attorneys, according to Michigan state law, attorneys are public officials. So when you're serving in that capacity, you can't be arrested for something like trespassing. I was literally on site serving in my role as an attorney, volunteer one at that. Now think about the implications. If you're not an attorney, and I'm guessing 99% of you watching this or not, if you're not an attorney, this is very crucial for you. I went down to protect the interests of others who were being threatened with arrest if they didn't leave. I went down to represent them and protect their interests. That is my job as an attorney. Why would any attorney ever come out to assist you as your rights are being violated right before your eyes? Why would any attorney ever come to your aid in the moment to stop something from happening if they're allowed to be arrested for doing so. Now, they didn't say I was doing it, you know, the wrong way. Literally, me physically being present, they said, was not allowed. So, do you want to be put in that position where if you find yourself having your constitutionally protected, God-given liberties trampled all right before your eyes that you know there's no point in even calling an attorney because no one's going to risk their own freedom to come out and help you there are huge implications with that but think about other public officials i've had township uh trustees i've had 
uh, city council members and county uh, commission members. I've had all kinds of public officials reach out to me for help because they were being threatened. For example, when the MDHHS orders, um, when I was serving as a trustee on the Georgetown Township Board in Michigan, uh, other townships were also trying to have their meetings held in public like are required by the Constitution and state law. But MDHHS was trying to say, oh, you can't you can't have any kind of meetings in public. So uh, in places up north in Michigan, the Michigan State Police actually had gone into local township board meetings and threatened everybody with arrest if they didn't disperse because they're having a meeting in public, an open meeting as required by law and the Constitution. That's insane. If those officials are legally allowed, if there's any kind of substance to a charge where they could be arrested for simply holding a meeting in public when they're a public official, that's huge. That's a problem. Our entire way of, of uh, having government and uh, freedom as we know it would halt, come to a grinding halt if those kinds of things were allowed to happen. So. You can't go arresting public officials, at least in the state of Michigan, when they're serving in that capacity, unless they meet one of three very small uh, exceptions to that. Procedural due process. We talked about substance um, and why in my case, I gave you some of those examples. So substantive due process. Uh, they didn't have the right to stop me from being there in the first place. They didn't have the right to bring the charges in the first place. It's not about how the case is going on uh, once it has been started. It's that the case, literally, there's no authority for the court to have the case um, because um, I had a right to be there. The clerk didn't have a compelling interest to remove me. Her way of doing so was not narrowly tailored. Uh, this supposed resolution was very vague and overbroad. If it did give her the authority, they claim it did. Election law and motor vehicle laws in Michigan would definitely, without any doubt, preempt any kind of um, local control that they try to have over that. Because think about it, vehicle laws, those need to be uniform all across our state because people drive all around the state on a regular basis. You can't possibly be expected to keep up on local uh, vehicle and traffic laws. I mean, I'm not talking about a speed limit that, you know, those are actually done in conjunction with the uniform um, uh, vehicle code. In Michigan, but at any rate, um, there's sense to that. I like more localized power, but you have to realize there's just some things that no government is able to do because it would lead to confusion. If every single municipality was allowed to handle uh, moving violations and parking violations differently, that would lead to utter chaos in a state. It's not allowed. Um, and again, ordinances our local laws, not resolutions. So there's no substance, uh, substance to their attempt to um, remove me, for the clerk to supposedly have authority to remove me. So all of those are substantive due process. Then you go to procedural due process. I cannot believe I'm on the second page. Well, I'm not going to get through everything today. I thought there was no way I was going to go for a whole hour, but I um, guess there's so much to say here. So um, proceed... Uh, Yes, procedural due process. 
procedural due process. Um, my husband asked me on Sunday when I was talking about this topic, and I said, this is what I'm going to do the show about this week. I feel without any doubt, this is a topic we need to discuss. Usually we're kind of debating which topics would be best for a particular week, um, Lori and Mike and myself. But no, this one I knew we had to talk about it. And so my husband, who is not an attorney, if anybody uh, doesn't know him and you're watching, he's not an attorney. He never went to law school, never went to college. Uh, my husband has never worked in an office environment other than mine and uh, has no formal training whatsoever in you know legal matters. So he's an average Joe, average Mike. Well, he's a pretty good Mike, but uh, he's an average Joe. Anyway, he um, had a really great question. He said, um, so you're talking about procedural and substantive due process. Number one, um, I don't know. Are those words in the U.S. or Michigan constitutions? Substantive due process and procedural due process. Does it explain that there's two different things going on? And actually, no, it doesn't. And I would say... Um, you know, we don't want to read into the courts have been reading into the Constitution for decades, for centuries, and it's messed up. And the vast majority of the time they get it wrong. But on this, there has been no dispute about this. This isn't something that people argue in court uh, that, oh, no, there's no you know procedural and substantive due process. Literally, I don't think I've ever come across or heard of a case in the thousands of cases I've researched throughout the years or been a part of. I've never heard somebody say, well, there's no such thing as procedural due process and substantive due process. No, it just makes sense. The substance, the, the court has to, or the government has to have um, the authority for the substance, for what it is they're trying to do in the first place. And procedurally, even if they have the authority to do the main thing they're trying to get at doing, they have to do it in the right way. They have to follow the proper procedures and rules. So due process um, was his, his other. So procedural and substantive due process, it's common sense. If you really stop and think about it, it's common sense. Right. So and, and even, you know, well, getting to the next point. He asked me if it's a term of art, if it's a specific definition, is due process, is that in the Constitution in a way that, you know, attorneys and judges and all that, they, they, you know, it means something specific in the legal setting rather than out in the real world. No, that's the great part. Literally, due and process, those are the words that are meant. We all know what due, you're due something, something is owed to you. Small children in an elementary school would understand when something is owed to them. If they have, um, you know, if they have, um, I can't even think, lunch at school, they know that they are owed lunch, that whether it's their parents that have packed them the lunch or, you know, bought school made lunch or whatever, uh, they know that they are due um, food and water and shelter, right? They, they understand that. It's a basic need. Um, so even the smallest of children can understand that. But process, our children understand that too. Think about it this way. When you see a line of kindergartners and they're getting ready to line up so they can go out for recess 
or they're going on a field trip. I mean, something is super exciting and they can't wait to get there or just lunch because, you know, kids are excited about lunch too. Um, they're waiting in line. If some kid from the back of the line decides he's going to cut and walk around everybody and, and cut in the front of the line, the kids will tell you. I've worked in an elementary school setting uh, for years. Kids will tell you and they will tell each other, that's not fair. You can't butt. You can't cut in line because there's a process. There's a way to do it. It's set out and there's clear expectations and everyone knows what those clear expectations are. You wait for your turn to get in the lunch line or to, you know, ride that ride at the field trip or whatever, right? So do and process, literal definitions of those words, not some special legal term. So the procedural due process it requires notice. It requires an opportunity to be heard. It requires an impartial decision maker. Now, this could be in uh, an administrative law context. This could be in a criminal case. This could be uh, in a civil case. This could be dealing with a township board or uh, with, a, with a case in court in front of a judge and jury. You're required to receive procedural due process, means the proper process has to be followed where you are given notice of an action that the government is trying to take that affects your interests, that you have an opportunity to be heard on that action, and that there is an impartial, an impartial fair decision maker involved in that. And that's a Michigan Supreme Court case, in case anybody is wondering. But that's a common thing that's cited all throughout uh, the cases all across the country. In fact, the United States Supreme Court declared that procedural due process requires the alleged, um, uh, the person who's accused um, of the crime to be given notice of the proceedings against him. And, sorry, I'm realizing I have to make myself a note and I can't multitask. The U.S. Supreme Court uh, declared that procedural due process requires that someone accused of a crime has to be given notice of the proceedings against them, an opportunity to defend himself, as well as the assurance that the matter will be conducted in a fair manner. U.S. Supreme Court made that very clear. So here's some other points I want you to consider. It is the court's role to quote, these are not my words, okay? Protect public confidence in the judicial system. Again, we're talking about procedural and substantive due process. And I wanna remind you, this is not just in court cases, but obviously a majority of the situations where these issues seem to arise or people realize there's a, a due process concern, it talks about handling that matter in the court system. So it is the court's rule, student's role, to protect public confidence in the judicial system. The judicial system is uh, Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution. It's uh, Article 6 of the Michigan Constitution. I want to say it might be Article 5 of the Florida State Constitution. But it, the judicial system is an essential element, that third leg of this stool that holds up our, our, our entire way of government. And 
the it's the, there's an imperative the court has said there's an imperative of judicial integrity nothing can destroy a government more quickly than its failure to observe its own laws or worse its disregard of the charter of its own existence what does that mean this is something again uh, this is Map v. Ohio, a United States Supreme Court case from 1961, which quoted a 1960 U.S. Supreme Court case. So the United States Supreme Court has said, nothing will destroy a government at any level, city, local, township, state, national. No government can be destroyed more quickly than if the government itself doesn't follow its own laws. And even worse, if it's going to violate the very constitution that created that form of government in the first place. Also in the U.S. Supreme Court, constitutional safeguards relating to the integrity of the criminal process attend every stage of a criminal proceeding, starting with arrest. So you have procedural due process rights from the word go, from the first time that they want to question you and put you under arrest. Well, in my case, they didn't question me. They didn't want to talk at all. <laughs> Questioning would have been good. Dialogue would have been good. Um, so your rights, I want you all to realize this, your rights, you don't have to wait for your procedural due process rights for the actual day of trial. Every step along the way, the court, the prosecutors, uh, everyone owes you procedural due process protections. They have to follow the procedures that are put in place to protect your rights. So, for example, uh, this, this means that an accused must be afforded open access to the courts, uh, just the same as all other litigants, according to the court rules. Um, we'll explain that in a minute, but I want to touch on some other points. The U.S. Supreme Court has explained that implicit in the Fifth Amendment guarantee of due process of law and also implicit in the Sixth Amendment guarantee of a right to assistance of counsel, it is the right of the accused to personally manage and conduct his own defense in a criminal case. So some of you have asked that before uh, many times in a variety of uh, videos in different contexts. What about the right to people to um, defend themselves in court? The U.S. Supreme Court said the Fifth and Sixth Amendments clearly work together and allow you to defend your own case in court, to be your own attorney, to have your own say, to personally manage and conduct your own defense. And, side note, you're allowed to have the assistance of counsel even if you're the lead attorney on the case. That's what I've been doing with mine. I'm the lead attorney, but I've had uh, three different attorneys uh, at different stages assisting me. Well, except for when the court was denying me, but we'll get into that. The U.S. Supreme Court has explained um, also that the rights to notice, to confront your accusers, to have compulsory process, to, to uh, force witnesses to attend the trial, uh, by subpoena. All of those pieces guarantee that a criminal, uh, that a criminal case or a criminal charge is, um, 
uh, answered in a manner that is fundamental to the fair administration of American justice. So in other words, the courts have said these pieces, these elements that are essential to a criminal case running properly, they're fundamental. Without those kinds of rights, procedural due process rights, uh, the entire administration of American justice would be um, gone. It, it wouldn't be done properly. And these rights are so basic to our adversary system of criminal justice that they are part of the due process clause that is guaranteed by the 14th Amendment to defendants in criminal courts in the states. So the U.S. Constitution also guarantees criminal defendants a meaningful opportunity to present a complete defense. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has uh, mentioned that at various um, in various cases. So I'm just going to repeat that because it's super important. The Constitution guarantees a criminal defendant a meaningful opportunity to present a complete defense. So with me, for example, in one of our um, status conferences, the court actually told me last summer that uh, it's essentially going to try stopping me from presenting my defense, which is I had the legal right to be there. Even if I was wrong in, in what the law actually said, you can't be guilty of most crimes without what's called mens rea, the criminal intent. If I did not intend to remain on the property of another without legal permission to be there, then I can't be charged with criminal trespassing because criminal trespassing is intentionally remaining on somebody else's property when you know that you don't have the right to be there and they've asked you to leave. Well, in this case, the clerk didn't have the authority to ask me to leave and I did have the authority to be there. But even if I was wrong, if my assumptions uh, were reasonable at all, then I have the right to at least share that information with the jury because I can't be held criminally responsible then for intentionally remaining where I shouldn't remain. Very important things. It's not just trespass. Mens rea or the, the criminal uh, intent is something that is applicable to most charges, okay? So denying me my complete defense um, denies me of a meaningful opportunity to really defend myself, which denies me procedural due process. So <laughs> kind of jumping back over for a second, given that I had the legal authority to be on that public property and that a deputy's ignorance of the law, as opposed to a reasonable misinterpretation, cannot create a basis for probable cause. The deputy had no probable cause to arrest me. My arrest made without probable cause violated due process. That's a procedural problem. And given the circumstances, an arrest by physically taking me into custody was totally unreasonable. That violated my due process, my procedural due process. How he did it was wrong. But even more so, the excessive use of force that day and the intentional infliction of emotional distress they caused me 
was beyond unjustifiable. It definitely violated my procedural due process rights. So just hopefully those are examples that can help flush out these differences between substantive and procedural. So what does it mean to have, uh, to be informed of the nature of the accusation or uh, to have that proper notice? That's part of that procedural due process. What does that mean? Well, uh, the case itself, let's put it this way. Um, this was an incident that happened November 3rd, 2020. Uh, I was issued a carbon copy ticket uh, and the copy that I was handed was nearly impossible to read the incident number section, the date, case type, the actual state law, the description of the offense, uh, the complainant's signature, the officer's name, the officer's ID number. It was nearly impossible to read. And in case you're curious, I have a very crystal clear copy of the actual ticket available on my website in those briefs. After issuing the citation and serving it on me, this carbon copy, the deputy altered the ticket before filing it with the court. Whoa, procedural due process issue, okay? I was served one thing and then it was modified and he filed another thing. So he's telling the court by filing it, this is what she was served with, not the case. And like I said, the ticket that was issued and served upon me was substantially different than the ticket filed with the court. In fact, the case was legally started, in my case, it was legally started as a civil infraction. Civil infraction, no jail time, significant less problems in dealing with the consequences. It what He literally wrote the ticket as a civil infraction and the case started at the moment he served me with that civil infraction ticket. But without ever serving me with criminal process, this case is being prosecuted as a misdemeanor, as a criminal case. I was never served papers starting a criminal case against me. I was served civil infraction papers. And state law in many different areas, um, requires uh, that the citation or notice given to defendants be as complete as possible, specifically stating the substance of the accusation. On my ticket, the only defense, the only description of the offense said MCL 750.552 trespass. Well, there's a spot to put the state law. That's not the description of what I did wrong. This is, again, an example to show you what is actually required when you're in one of those situations. There were absolutely no descriptive words on this ticket to describe the supposed illegal conduct, let alone being used to describe it as completely as possible. And it doesn't recite the substance of the accusation. It literally doesn't say any facts about what I did. It does not qualify then as a required complaint stating all the facts and circumstances constituting the statutory offense. They didn't explain how I broke the law. That's required. If that happens to you, it's your procedural due process rights that have been violated. They didn't do it the right way. But I was also denied equal and fair access to the court. This is a procedural due process thing. So on November uh, 12th, 2020, I called the court to get a hearing date 
for my motion to dismiss. I, obviously, I wanted to get this thing dismissed because they didn't have the right to bring it to begin with. I was denied having a hearing on that until November, or excuse me, two, two months later, uh, wait, three months later on uh, February 4th, 2021. So I was denied fair and equal access to the court. Now, the court was having hearings this whole time. The courthouse was physically open, but they wouldn't allow me to get in. If I did it by Zoom, they would have done it much sooner. I could have had it done, you know, the next week. But because I needed to be in person, they denied me to be there in, in until three months later. So what about my motion to dismiss? So I filed this motion and the court, uh, the trial court denied my motion to dismiss, <laughs> said that I had no legal remedy. I couldn't challenge the legal insufficiency of this case. All I had a right to was a jury trial in the end. That's a load of garbage. Don't ever let a court tell you that. They don't know what they're talking about. If you're in a criminal case and you are told that you can't file a motion for dismissal, a motion for summary disposition, uh, that's incorrect. You absolutely have the right to file. Your rights are even more implicated in a criminal case than in a civil case. So why would you have additional procedural protections for a civil matter that you would for criminal? It makes no sense. Um, all the authority goes along with what I'm saying. And, um, anyway, there's specifics in there that you can read in my briefs, but just keep that in mind. Um, in fact, uh, Michigan court rule 2.116 I one says that dismissing this case was the appropriate remedy that the court was supposed to, um, do when I asked for it. Um, 16 months ago. And even if I didn't file a motion under Rule 2.116, Michigan Court Rule 2.116, like we mentioned before, with all those obligations that a court has to do to ensure the rights um, of the accused, to ensure um, public um, opinion and the judicial integrity are kept intact uh, for the judiciary, the court has a duty to address the jurisdictional and the legal issues. Even if I didn't file the right motion, even if that court rule didn't even exist, the court's job is to take a pause and go, wait a minute, prosecutor, you want me to oversee a case where you're charging this person with, with a crime, but the crime you're saying they committed is not actually a crime. I can't hear that case. I don't have jurisdiction. That's what the court has the authority and the duty to do, even if I didn't raise that issue, let alone how I raised that issue. Okay. Have you ever been denied fair treatment in a court? If you've been in court, chances are you're going to say yes. I was denied fair treatment by the court. So again, it has to be an impartial decision maker. Now the judge, I'm, I have a jury trial coming up in less than a month, but the judge is the decision maker in terms of all the different pieces and procedures along the way. And uh, what do you think? When I was um, arguing my oral argument to uh, dismiss this case, the judge was rolling his eyes during my oral argument. Does that sound like an impartial court to you? 
uh, the court treated not only myself, but one of the attorneys I had physically present to help me at that hearing by throwing him out of the courtroom, did not even let him stay in the courtroom because the court said no one else was allowed but me. That's illegal and unconstitutional for a variety of reasons we'll get into, but by treating him that way and by treating me, both of us are officers of the court. Uh, that dismissive, disrespectful manner clearly did not provide for fair treatment. And the aggressive manner that myself, my husband, Lori, and uh, attorney Greg Todd have been treated by the deputies each time we arrive at the courthouse, <laughs> one really wonders how there could possibly be a fair and impartial process at play. Literally aggressively, basically telling me and telling the others they're going to deny us entry into the building. How is that fair process? It's not. It's a due process, a procedural due process violation. I'm just telling you that these are things that you probably have encountered or know somebody who has encountered, and it's not okay. It violates your procedural due process rights. They denied me assistance of counsel. Like I said, they threw attorney Greg Todd out of the courtroom. So for those of you who don't know what happened that day, when I went in in January for the arraignment, the initial day I was told I'd be able to argue my uh, motion to dismiss. When I went in, um, the uh, there were a few other people in the courtroom and the judge was not wearing a mask and he was behind plexiglass and uh, there were a couple times that I couldn't hear what he said, but for the most part, I was able to read his lips and it worked okay. Well, I had a feeling because they were putting me in front of another judge for the motion to dismiss. This is the trial judge then. Um, I didn't know if he was going to be wearing a mask or if the prosecutor was going to be wearing a mask or any of that. So I brought up attorney Greg Todd. I brought him up to speed on all the issues. And I said, listen, if they happen to be wearing masks and if they are going to deny me my ABA accommodation after seemingly approving of it, um, cause they wanted to hold it by zoom, but I requested to have the hearing in person so I could read lips and they knew that, uh, if they're going to deny me that, then at least if I have you as a criminal defense attorney, um, up to speed on the facts and the law on the case that you could step in. If I can't hear, if you see that I'm struggling to catch what's going on, or e even after the, the hearing to be able to fill me in on parts of what happened, that's why I brought him. And I have a right to assistance of counsel. They denied me having an attorney in the courtroom. And he said he'd be more than happy to file an appearance. Court didn't want it. They said, no, he could not be in the courtroom. That is blatantly unconstitutional, violating my procedural due process rights. I was denied, like I said, my ADA accommodations illegally and without notice. That happened in two different instances. That uh, day at February 4th, when I wasn't told ahead of time that they would be wearing masks and not um, allowing me to read their lips. Um, and also at uh, a later uh, pretrial conference where the judge would not allow it to happen in person, but instead said it was going to happen by Zoom. And then when I called in and it, the notice to appear, the court order said that I would be able to go into a breakout room with the prosecuting attorney. So if we're going to do it by Zoom, it's just he and I, I could blow up his portion of the screen and see his face and read his lips. Uh, the court denied me of that. 
and said I had to, instead, he kicked me out of the hearing and instead said I had to call the prosecutor so I can't possibly read lips. And meanwhile, the prosecutor was insanely hard to hear because he had the Zoom hearings that were currently being held by the court on full blast on his computer right next to him. At any rate, and when he said, can you hear me? And I said, no, absolutely not. This is very hard for me to hear you. He just continued and we had our pretrial conference. So um, when you have a situation like that, um, it it goes to the very core of how the process uh, of the court works and the case needs to be dismissed with prejudice so they can't refile it. I was also denied open hearings that state law and the U.S. and Michigan constitutions clearly require. So I was denied the right to be physically present at hearings after that. That was the only one we had in person. I was uh, forced to do it by Zoom after that. Um, there, by sending out these notices, I, um, I'm being denied the right to have face-to-face -face confrontation with witnesses. I'm being denied the right to have the jury physically present at trial. I don't know what shenanigans they're going to try, but they have Zoom written on it. And if they try to, I have heard that they've had the jury in one room and appearing by a Zoom, uh, you know, camera or whatever. And so they're not even in the same room as me or the prosecutor or the judge. If they're going to try to do that to me, that obviously denies my due process rights. Um, I have a right to have the public in trial. In fact, um, a public trial, Black's Law Dictionary, is a trial that anyone may attend or observe. By literally telling me that not a single human being was allowed in the courtroom besides the prosecutor and the judge, that denies me a right to a public trial. Mind you, every step along the way, all those big hearings along the way are also required to be open to the general public. And they have closed that down. Um, they denied the media coming in that day. The media was there present and then even asked, uh, well, if you won't let me physically in there, can I just tap into your feed so we can access it that way? Because they were doing it, um, supposedly broadcasting it on their YouTube channel. The court denied the media being present or tapping into the feed to share anything that was happening. That's entirely unconstitutional, violating procedural due process. The court uh, allowed the prosecutor to continue filing information that has my protected identifying information, despite a court rule that says they can't do that. And when I asked the court, when I made a motion to have my personal uh, information redacted from court records and make the prosecutor refile correctly, the court said no and wouldn't even put it in writing that they were denying my request. I was denied having, the, the prosecutor's office was mailing me by snail mail any of their uh, responses to my documents. So I wasn't getting stuff until uh, literally the day before a hearing or the day of the hearing in the mail when they could have emailed me. And if they're saying I'm not even allowed to be in person, that everything has to be done online, they should have followed the Michigan Supreme Court's directive that said you have to try to serve people electronically if at all possible during COVID. That is a procedural due process violation. And the court denied me discovery. It used to be in Michigan that misdemeanors didn't get um, uh, discovery, but they do. And if you're wondering, it's it's Michigan Court Rule 6.610E and 
and I made the motion. I followed all the rules. I had a hearing and I'm being denied getting virtually any of the information that I requested. So what did I ask the court to do to help you understand this? Because of each of these different things, number one, I asked for a dismissal of all charges and infractions with prejudice, meaning they can't ever file it again. But if they were, well, and if they were to do that, in Michigan, there's, you have an arrest record. Um, there's an internet criminal history access tool. It's called iChat. You want to make sure to ask to have your, um, all of your arrest record information deleted from there. Uh, also, that within 60 days of an order for dismissal, I asked that the arrest record, any biometric data or fingerprints would be expunged and destroyed, and I would be um, removed from LEAN, the uh, Law Enforcement Information Network. That's according to Michigan state law. It, this process appears in other states as well, but uh, at least in Michigan, I have the citations for these if you're experiencing a similar issue. I asked the court the Court of Appeals, for an order that all hearings and proceedings on this misdemeanor charge would, uh, that court participants shall not wear masks or other face coverings because it's a reasonable accommodation when I am hard of hearing and need to read lips, that I would not be denied the assistance of counsel of my choice, that the public would have full access to be physically present in the courtroom, the jury, the witnesses, and all other participants would be present in the courtroom and not participate by Zoom, that I would be allowed to share the video footage of the prior proceedings and these proceedings with the public, that the media would have access and physical presence in the courtroom, uh, that um, my personal identifying information would be redacted. Uh, I also asked the Court of Appeals to enter an order um, making clarifications about other aspects of the process. And if you're experiencing any of these relating to these new kinds of COVID restrictions, please check out my procedural due process brief, page 45 and 46. I kind of lay out all the procedures that need to be followed uh, in order to have procedural due process. So make sure to check that out. Um, and then I asked uh, the court to enter an order granting me the relief I asked for in my motion to compel discovery. Before the order actually was signed, the, um, the, the verbal order ordered the prosecutor to turn over the information to me. By the time the judge signed the paper order, they had already, the prosecutor's office had already missed that deadline and still hadn't provided anything to me. And when I asked the court, what can I do now? Because I've already gotten this motion to compel signed. The court has done nothing. The court has completely ignored me. So I asked the court of appeals about this. So some concluding thoughts. Um, and man, there's so many thoughts I wanted to share with you about the substantive due process, but let's just round out today's discussion because it's a lot longer already than I wanted. You can raise a subject matter jurisdiction problem at any time, certainly before an unjust trial occurs or the injury itself would have already been sustained. The Michigan Supreme Court in 1996 was essentially saying if there's the court doesn't have um, subject matter jurisdiction. They don't have like this charge doesn't actually apply to you. The court doesn't have jurisdiction over this case at all. 
then you can raise that as an interlocutory appeal, as, a, as an appeal before your trial date. And they, they're telling you it's best to do that so you're not having to go through a trial that you shouldn't have to. Where lower courts are violating the Constitution, the Constitution does not permit the reviewing judges to look the other way. Rather, they must call foul when the constitutional lines are crossed. We mentioned that earlier. Because the court's vi fidelity to the Michigan Constitution is crucial. They have to follow it. These are not my words. These are the words of the Michigan Supreme Court throughout the years. And courts must indulge, quote, courts must indulge every reasonable presumption against the loss of constitutional rights. They have to bend over backwards to make sure someone is not going to have their constitutionally protected rights violated as a case proceeds through the courts. The U.S. Supreme Court said that all the way back in 1938, the year before my grandmother was born. So what can you do? I will probably do a constitutional segment recap that gives you um, a lot of these cases and statutes and things like that. But quite honestly, they're already in those two briefs. I have a substantive SDP due process appeal uh, brief online, as well as the procedural due process appeal online. So you can look at those documents. Just start by reading the table of contents. And it's a clickable PDF. You can navigate that pretty easily. Get familiar with that so you can understand a little bit more more about the difference between substantive and procedural due process so you can better understand your own rights right when you need it the most. Uh, so make sure to check back tomorrow for our Wednesday Way to Get Involved Challenge on um, Thursday for that Constitution segment recap. Friday, we'll have some great freedom fighting resources available for you. Sunday, the biblical perspective on it all. And uh, I'm just going to take a moment to see if um, there's any questions I need to uh, address. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, if it follows procedure but denies opportunity or fails to meet the needs, I'm not sure what that means. Um, Sounds like all the courts have possibly infiltrated by the same people that think mandates are a law. Yes, Scott, on Facebook, that is true. Um, there are way too many people in court uh, roles that think mandates are law, that think uh, executive orders are laws and uh, emergency orders, uh, you name it. Uh, there's so much wrong. My case is a perfect example of the vast majority of problems that you can encounter in your own, just trying to exist, let alone in your own fight for freedom. My case serves as a very clear example of the numerous ways it can all go wrong, how every single government actor involved can be violating their oath of office and not doing their damn job. So uh, please continue to learn from this to be able to empower yourself to fight back uh, with this very long hour and a half segment uh, this is Constitutional Attorney Catherine Henry. I really appreciate you joining me today. I hope you'll re-listen to this later on to let some of that information sink in because we went through quite a bit. And uh, most of all, always know that your rights come from God, not the government. 
And government does not have any rights at all. Government is given certain powers. Those powers are explicitly laid out in the U.S. or state constitution. And if they are not given specific powers to act in one of those constitutions by the people, then they don't have the authority to act. But you always retain your unalienable rights that are given to you by God. So keep that in mind as you continue learning this week and continue living out your own quest for freedom. Constitutional Attorney Catherine Henry, thank you so much for joining me today. Have a great day.